0: All right, it is time for another episode of Soul Enjoy's Podcast. I am Zahner, and I am joined in this very special episode by our good friend Arlen Schumer. Arlen, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited.
0: Now, you uh, you have been on the show a few times before. For those who are not familiar with you, you, are, uh, I mean, you do kind of a little bit of everything. You're an illustrator. You're a, a lecturer. You're an artist. Uh, you're an author. You... You wrote the the very amazing book, I should say, uh, Silver Age of Comic Book Art, uh, which well, it, I wrote
1: and designed it. It's not wrote, yes, because most people think of all like most other history books, you know, text heavy with little reproductions. Yeah, mine's the exact opposite.
0: Now it's it's fantastic book. So listener, if you have not if you have not checked that out yet, and if we've been we've been promoting that here on the show off and on for years. Go check it out. It's going to be good. But we wanted to have you on the show, Arlen, because you are going to be, and we're actually doing this show uh, right now when we're doing it and releasing it when we're when we're releasing it, because you're going to be in Salt Lake City this weekend. Absolutely. Uh, you are coming into town for Fanex. First time. Uh, yes. So we've been trying to get you to Fanex here for a few years, and it finally happened. So I'm excited about that. But you're going to be here doing your visual lectures. Now, for those who aren't familiar with your visual lectures, give them a brief rundown of kind of what you do with, the, with those.
1: Well, you know, the word lecture itself is such a pejorative that the reason why I, I'm trying to brand what I do as visual lectures, because the amount of time and effort I put into creating a very dramatic visual presentation on the screen while I'm talking it's sort of like this ain't your father's art history lectures. This isn't a clunk, clunk slideshow. You know, I've been going to comic conventions my whole life. And you'd be surprised that in such a visual medium as comic book art, the visual presentations that you've seen at comic conventions, I mean, I've gone to lectures where they don't even have visuals. They're talking about comics without any visuals at all. And here I I, am, as a graphic designer... I love comics. I mean, how you can talk about comics and not have the incredible visuals that comics are all about. I mean, not that they're not about the writing either. We can talk about that. But on a purely visual level, that's part and parcel. I mean, Gil Kane himself, one of the great Silver Age artists said, "Uh, comics are all about the art. That's what they've always been about is the great art. And so just on a purely visual level, I design my shows so that you get as much visual information in the course of 45 minutes, you're gonna see more images than you've ever seen in 45 minutes. But it it, it won't seem like you'll be seeing it. When I tell you in the end, how many images you've just seen, it's in the hundreds. And yet, the way I put them together, the way I segue them, as I'm talking about them, the things I want you to look at, all of a sudden, the camera will zoom in on the thing I want you to look at. So yes, it's kind of, it's part art history lecture. It's part performance in a way, because I'm very passionate about the work that I present. I mean, I love my subject matter. I love The Twilight Zone. I love Steve Ditko. I love Neil Adams' Batman, the three subjects I'm I'm going to do it, Salt Lake. And um, so my passion and my energy in in just talking about this great art animates me. So it's, it's really the best word I could come up with. I thought, oh, visual lecture, because they share the letter L, the last word of visual and the first word of lecture. But I'm kind of stuck because there's no other word other than lecture. If you just say presentation, a presentation could be anything. It could just be putting pictures on an easel in a room. So I can't find another word other than lecture, so that's kind of what I do. But they're really as much verbal as they are visual, and isn't that what comics are, words and pictures? But isn't that what our whole society is? Everything on the computer, everything is words and pictures. So I give you a kind of a live presentation of words and pictures
0: and those are extremely entertaining uh if you listener have not ever checked these out they are on youtube i, I highly recommend them i mean arlen covers everything from i mean jews and comics to the flintstones so <laughs> there i mean you you want pop culture hard
1: bored of
0: Yeah, Arlen's got you covered. Now, uh, you've mentioned the three panels that you're going to be doing. We'll talk a little bit more about them here in a second. But the main one that we want to talk about uh, right now is it's, it's called the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the Twilight Zone. Why the Twilight Zone? I mean, of all the shows that have come out over the history of television, I mean, it could be the Honeymooners. It could be, I mean, why the Twilight Zone? The Honeymooners,
1: maybe the greatest comedy. My my personal favorite. You know, you, you bring up the Honeymooners. I got to go there.
0: Well, you know, and, and I, I love Lucy it because dated. of the Flintstones.
1: I well, I love <laughs> Lucy. Very dated to me, even though I grew up with it through reruns. The Honeymooners to me is like a comic strip, a a black and white comic strip come to life. That limited set to me, the thirty three episodes of the Honeymooners have have stood the test of time far better than the kind of middle-brow I love Lucy uh, social upward climbing and, you know, you know what I mean? Not yeah. No offense to Lucille Ball, but I'll take the honeymooners. But, you know, that will segue into why the Twilight Zone. You know, I've often said, if the aliens were to beam down right now while we're doing this podcast and said we have room on our spaceship. For one Earth television show, what are you going to give the aliens? Are you going to give them the Honeymooners? Are you going to give them the Sopranos? Are you going to give them Breaking Bad, Mad Men? Uh, Are you going to give them Game of Thrones, which is just coming to a climax? What are you going to give the aliens? I'm giving them about fifty Twilight Zone episodes as the greatest Earth television has ever produced. And why would I give them the Twilight Zone? Because I would want to show the aliens the spectrum of the human condition through television. I would want to show them television as an art form, meaning when all the elements that make up a television episode come together, that means the writing, the directing, the acting, the concept, the photography, the sound, the music, the editing, just like we award a film in all those categories. You know, there's a Twilight Zone episode, Walking Distance. It's the fifth episode of of the great first season. If, If only the first season of Twilight Zone existed, I would still give that to the aliens because of the range of great episodes within that first season alone. But one of them, Walking Distance, is maybe the greatest time travel filmed show ever made against even any film about time travel, but any television episode. And what makes it so beautiful is exactly what I just said. Every single element that makes up a television show is at 110% level of quality. The second half of Walking Distance, in which the actor Gig Young plays a doppelganger of Serling himself, trying to go back in time to when he was a boy, and he meets himself as a boy, and he meets his own parents who, in his current life, are long deceased. It's the wish fulfillment that we all go through about wishing to go back in time to when we were kids, the good old days, all of those feelings. Again, universal themes and ideas to tell the aliens who we are as a race, as a people. The second half of Walking Distance alone, the the 12 minutes from the halfway point to the end, I was just watching recently on my rerun channel, which beautifully shows the Twilight Zone in chronological order. So they cycle through the five seasons and they just happen to be on Walking Distance just as I was writing about it on my recent Facebook top 13 episodes that define the Twilight Zone. And walking distance is one of them. And I was watching it with new eyes because I had just written about it. The second half alone, I'm calling the Citizen Kane of television. Now, what do I mean by that? Citizen Kane, up until recently, was voted the greatest movie of all time for 75 years at every poll, only recently displaced by Vertigo. I don't know if you know, I don't know if you knew that.
0: I, I was not aware of that.
1: Okay. You know, this famous film critics poll, they get together every five, 10 years. Citizen Kane always was number one. Anyway. I, I, I
0: will say I like Vertigo much better than Citizen Kane, though.
1: Well, we can talk. That's a separate <laughs> podcast. just like we're going to talk about Shane being the greatest Western. Okay. Again, I digress. The thing about walking this is whatever Citizen Kane for 75 years had been honored for, what is it about it? the greatness of the concept, the writing, the acting, the photography, every element of filmmaking is added, seen it in. And the theme of Citizen Kane, one man's birth and death. It's all, it's the great themes about love and, and, and not being loved. Everything. Yeah. War and peace. The point is, is you can find everything great about Citizen Kane in this little 12 minutes of television called The Second Half of Walking Distance. It is so, on every level, like I said, the, 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 the time travel concept, the incredible acting, the photography by the Twilight Zone director of photography, George T. Clemens, you know, the greatest black and white television photography ever. The greatest close-ups, you know, you talk about television as a medium of close-ups. The close-ups in the episode Walking Distance Alone directed by Robert Stevens who only directed one other Twilight Zone episode, but it's the pilot, Where Is Everybody?, which is also one of the definitive Twilight Zone episodes. So he directs only two episodes, but they're timeless and universal. And the close-ups alone of Gig Young and The Father, there's a carousel scene at the end of Walking Distance. You know, when you talk about the history of film, carousel scenes, people always talk about the Hitchcock film, I think Strangers on a Train, that ends with a famous carousel scene. Fine, that's for movies. You know who did a greater carousel scene on television? The second half of Walking Distance. When you watch it, it is so poetically filmed, you're not going to believe it. So these are the claims I make for The Twilight Zone. I say that it's the father of American popular culture because Serling and company created a body of works that when you think of any modern science fiction, fantasy, horror product, I can trace it back to Serling and the Twilight Zone in less than six degrees of Serling as I, as I pay homage to six degrees of Kevin Bacon. But, you know, what, what we've talked about, Serling's metaphorical children, he had two uh, now adult daughters. I think they're in their mid 60s. Um, but his metaphorical children just came of age in American popular culture just when Serling passed away in 1975. Uh-huh. Steven Spielberg does Jaws in 75. Stephen King emerges with Carrie. Years later, uh, David Lynch was filming a Racerhead in Philadelphia in 75. George Lucas was prepping Star Wars. You know, that entire generation, had Serling lived only five or ten more years, he would have seen the legacy, the influence of the Twilight Zone. You know, Stephen King wrote a book in 1983 called Dance Macabre, which is a nonfiction overview of the science fiction, fantasy, and horror fields. And he devotes an entire chapter to the Twilight Zone. And he talks about, and I quote from him in my presentation, he said they were all young teenagers or late adolescents when Serling's Twilight Zone aired originally. And it blew their minds and made them take the career tracks that they took to create our modern American pop culture, fantasy, science fiction, you name it. Look, we're celebrating this new Twilight Zone and Jordan Peele's emergence through the Twilight Zone. And, you know, the connections are everywhere. You look at a TV series like Lost. You look at the influence on J.J. Abrams of The Twilight Zone. Serling had a one-year, one-hit wonder in 1969-70 on ABC about a group of young people that crash land on a desert island. It's called The New People. Did you know that?
0: I did not know that.
1: And then J.J. Abrams, years later does something called Loss.
0: Yeah, it comes out with Loss.
1: So the point is, is part of my presentation is showing how the Twilight Zone is the middle ground between surrealism and 20th century art that precedes it. But then how it also opened up the door for psychedelia in the 60s and so much of what we now call our modern American pop culture and aspects of modern art as well. And that's the greatness of the Twilight Zone. So not only philosophically do its greatest episodes deal with all of the great themes of art and life and religion and life and death and you name it, you can find it in the greatest Twilight Zone episodes. And, of course, when I say greatest, um, you know, we're still having arguments with online polls about, you know, everybody's favorite episodes. But, you know, there's no real clear consensus, maybe a handful of episodes. but the point is, is my Twilight Zone episodes, the ones I'm giving to the aliens, might not be your Twilight Zone episodes, but therein lies many future podcasts.
0: I think it's safe, though, to say that Eye of the Beholder is probably on...
1: You should the, be always rated number one.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, towards the top of most everybody's list. And
1: why do you think that is?
0: You know, for me personally, it... Well, for one, it scares the it scares the
1: bejesus. Do so we need out. to tell the people listening in who may not know, God forbid, when uh, you say Eye of the Beholder, what that is? So
0: so for those who don't know, Eye of the Beholder is is the episode where you have have the beautiful man, the beautiful lady, uh are they're fleeing, what is it? They're in some medical facility, is that right? They're in a in a, a hospital. A hospital and they're being prepped for surgery and, and they don't they don't want the surgery. They decide they're not gonna uh, have the it's surgery. It's a woman. It's a woman. Yeah, it's it's a woman. And she's in
1: her eleventh surgery to fix her horribly ugly deformed face. And all the previous surgeries have failed. She's on her eleventh, and this is it. And we don't see her face until they out the bandages at the end.
0: And it turns out that that you know it's it's the pigman episode. It's it's the one with the pigman that. It turns
1: out she's actually a gorgeous blonde and later Ellie May from Beverly uh, Hillbillies. Oh, that's another is, little pop culture trivia. Is it
0: really? Is it yes, this
1: is, Donna Douglas who passed away, I think, two years ago or so. I,
0: I did not realize that that yes, was.
1: That's another little pop culture trivia. Although she doesn't play the actress behind the bandages. She just plays the exposed. But I digress. The point is, we all, during the episode, you got to say to people that have never seen it, we never quite see the faces of the doctors or nurses that are administering her. Yeah. They're hidden in shadow or they're framed by the director. So they're out of frame. And at the end of the episode, when it's revealed that what we're expecting is incredibly ugly face and yet she's beautiful. And then we see the doctors and nurses and their pig faces. And you know what? They're half pig and half, you know, they ride that line between comedy and tragedy. There's Mm -hmm. something both humorous about them but in a very black comedic way because yeah. there is a pig-like snout but that's what makes the twilight zone great and again part of my presentation is to point out that it rode the line so perfectly in instances like that whereas today's special effects are all over the top today yeah. they do a drippy gooey something really over the top But Twilight Zone knew how to be simple and classic and timeless. And again, that's why we're still talking about it. 60 years later, 2019, on October 2nd, will be the exact 60th anniversary.
0: Now, you mentioned, I I had no idea that that was actually Donna Douglas in that. But, you know, you... You were talking about walking distance before. I mean, Ron Howard was in that. Yes. You look at you look at some of the other episodes. Oh, it's a
1: who's who of Hollywood.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. William Shatner was in episode.
1: Robert Redford, Charles Bronson, James Coburn, yeah. movie stars, Burt Reynolds. Like, listen, it's a who's who of Hollywood of the 60s, 70s, and beyond.
0: Yeah, it, it's amazing the names, and these were these were nobodies. At the time, they, well...
1: Well, you know, it's funny. Serling gave Redford one of his first acting breaks in the 50s when he was doing the live 90-minute TV shows out of New York City. And Redford was a young actor in New York. And I think so later on in The Twilight Zone in 1961, when he's still an unknown, Serling puts him on television in this classic episode written by the great science fiction writer, George Clayton Johnson, who later writes the very first Star Trek episode. So there's another continuity with Twilight Zone. But it's a George Clayton Johnson episode, maybe his best, all about the old woman that lets Robert Redford in. He's a wounded cop. And um, she initially doesn't want to let him in because she thinks he's Mr. Death, come to, Take her away. Uh And of course, at the end, he is Mr. Death.
0: Yeah. But
1: again, one of the great themes, life and death and accepting the reality of death. I mean, these were heavy concepts in 23 minutes. The brevity of the storytelling in the Twilight Zone, the terseness And yet the volumes they were able to speak philosophically, literally, and I mean literally as in literature, like the depth of the concepts in only 23 minutes, essentially two-act plays filmed for television. They were the best episodes are television art. It's the art of great television in 23 minutes, which has really never been duplicated since. All drama after The Twilight Zone on television became an hour. All of it. Yeah. Half hours became situation comedies. Yeah. Nobody attempted. On top of it, it was anthology television. But the point is, the half-hour drama disappeared from television when The Twilight Zone went off the air. It's never been duplicated since. And that's another of its incredible achievements. Is that these episodes that I would give the aliens the greatest episodes say more in 23 minutes than other TV shows take in a whole
0: season. They caught lightning in a bottle. I think would be, I think that would be the, the expression to appropriately describe what the twilight zone is. It's lightning in a bottle and you know, they've tried to replicate it. They've, They've done the series. They did a series in the eighties. They did the movie. And, you know,
1: series in the two there were two syndicated shows. Yes. Spielberg did the twilight zone movie. Uh, The less said about that, the better. And (laughs) now, and now we have the new Jordan Peele thing, but you tell me what you want. Where do you want to begin carving that one up?
0: You know, I I will say this. I, I, I was never a big fan of the movie, but every single time I get on an airplane, and it's night and it's raining. I usually, for some reason, I always happen to sit by like by the wing or on the wing. I always think of uh, John Lithgow was it, looking out okay, and so seeing for you, I mean,
1: for you, you don't think of the Shatner version of that story first, because you were influenced more by the movie version.
0: Yeah, I, I saw the movie version first, first. so. Yeah, so
1: let me ask you something. How late after the movie version, how long was it before you saw the, the Twilight Zone version? Years?
0: It was years, yeah. It was years. So
1: how did it, I'm curious. How did the TV version stand up to your feeling about the Lithgow version?
0: I, I like the TV version much better. Uh, for really? I think obvious reasons, I I think no, it's, not obvious, reason. I think it's, obvious reasons. I think it's I think it's just I think it's be, it's better done. Um, I I just now, remember you know Matheson hated the furry animal
1: suit guy, the gorilla suit. He hated it. And oh, that's did he? Why you, oh yeah, that's why years later. Do you know about the TV movie he did? called Amelia with Karen Black with the little Zuni hunting fetish doll that chases her around her New York City apartment.
0: Uh, it sounds familiar. I don't believe okay. I've ever seen it.
1: It's a little, it was a 1975 TV movie made up of three, like 45 minute stories Okay, in an hour and a half. And they were all starring Karen Black, who was a hot actress at the time. And Richard Matheson wrote, I don't know whether he wrote all three or just the one with this, I forget, it was called Amelia because that's the name of the character that Karen Bach plays.
0: Uh-huh.
1: But it's all about him taking the episode The Invaders with Agnes Moorhead that he wrote for The Twilight Zone. You know, the woman in the farmhouse with the little figures that terrorize her? Uh-huh. And then it turns out they're American astronauts, you know that episode? Yes. Okay, that's considered one of the great episodes. Matheson hated those little Michelin Man figures that they came up with. He Uh thought they were stupid looking, hated it. So in 1975, 14 years later, he gets to basically redo that episode with Karen Black in a New York City apartment she gets this African Zuni hunting fetish doll. It's the craziest design you've ever seen. And it basically, it's the it's the invaders redone. Okay. And if you've never seen it, it's going to blow your mind. I You're need- not going to believe how great it is.
0: I need to find that. Okay. My
1: point is, Matheson hated the gremlin on the wing in the Shatner version. Uh-huh. Now... I think, you know, I think Twilight Zone fans are split on whether you like it or or, or don't like it. But yeah. you, who came of age with the Liftgow version, ended up saying you like the TV version better.
0: Uh, yeah, I like the TV version better, and I think it's because... I'm
1: surprised. I, I thought you were going to say, no. you I know, it. how can you accept that furry, the kind <laughs> of furry suit? I love when he leans over to rip out the stuff. You can see the leather soles
0: in his suit. But, you know, I look at it. I I don't look at it with with modern eyes. You know, I look at it with, you know, eyes from like nineteen.
1: Did you see it? How old were you when you saw the, the Twilight Zone version?
0: 12, maybe. So
1: you saw, and how old were you when you saw the Lithgow version?
0: Oh, sorry. The Lithgow version. Uh, I was probably twelve. So um, then,
1: how old were you when you saw this? The Twilight Zone version. Oh,
0: I. It was. I. I was in my thirties, probably. Okay,
1: so I'm saying you saw it as an adult.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I saw it. As
1: a mature adult. So you you say you didn't look at it with critical eyes.
0: No, I, I. I didn't look at it. You know, I looked at it with with eyes. You know. Understanding of the time. You know, this is this is what they were dealing with. This is this is the limitations that they had to deal with. This is what they were working with. I didn't expect, you know, some awesome CGI monster out there on the wing like you would see uh, today.
1: Of course. But I'm saying and, within uh, the imagination, but, listen, we were just describing the great imagination of the masks. Yeah. Design, but to me, the flaw of the Shatter episode is to me, they couldn't come up with something better than. The guy
0: in the furry ape suit, and you know, I I appreciated that though. You know, I appreciate. Well, you're not alone. There's pl- I told. You. I I think. Tw-
1: Listen, Matheson himself hated it, just like he hated. To me, you see, this gets back to the greatness of the Twilight Zone. Uh huh. To me, the greatest episodes are not reliant on special effects or monsters or oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? The best episodes are psychology and the mind. Yes. These concepts of otherworldly planes of existence and all this stuff. That, to me, is when I identified the 13 episodes that define the Twilight Zone, Uh-huh. they're all about these much more existential, surreal ideas. To me, whenever the Twilight Zone did a monster or a thing, it ended up, yes, partly the limitations of the time and partly their imaginations. The yeah. bottom line is, listen, people love The Outer Limits. Uh, I watch The Outer Limits. I've seen all the episodes. I think The Outer Limits, they're padded. They're all an hour long. They, they could have all been edited down to an hour. But to me, they were all about the monsters of the day. And most of them are ridiculous looking. Yeah. And you know, they're staunch defenders of outer limits, but I'll tell them to their face. Sorry, guys, but they are some of the stupidest looking, goofiest looking, crackest, <laughs> <laughs> cheapest. They're horrible and, and but yet you see to me, whenever the Twilight Zone ventured into that area, it failed just as much as Outer Limits. Yeah. Those while I listen, I love the Invaders episode, you know and And yes, I consider the Shatner episode one of the great episodes, but you know there are great episodes with flaws, and then there's perfect episodes like walking distance, yeah, you know so but listen, that's why we critique works of art. Not everything is at the same level, but you know within a wider category, yes, you know they are they are some of the great episodes, but like I said, the author of. Both teleplays hated the monsters in both of those episodes.
0: Uh-huh. Now, let me ask you this. Um, yes. There's an episode called The Stop at Willoughby. Yes. What are, right. what are your thoughts on that episode? Because, uh, you know, I, I've seen the episode a couple times. And for some reason, it really stands out in my mind as having liked it. But I don't remember why I liked it. I don't remember you oh, know, do you remember what it was about. Uh, I remember a dude falls asleep on the train, wakes up, and he's like 100 years in the past or something.
1: Not and, just a dude. You remember what he was doing?
0: Um,
1: I remember I, the part. Okay.
0: Yeah, I, I, don't re- I don't remember the details. I don't remember the details of it. But I remember it. that episode has what stuck a great with me for absolutely. years. Yeah, it has stuck with me for years, and I don't, re- I don't know why.
1: And it's the sister episode to Walking Distance. It's also written by Serling. It's another thing about nostalgia for a simpler time, wanting to, you know, get out of the current rat race that he felt he was in. At the time, Serling in the 50s, before he went out to LA to do the Twilight Zone, was living in the very town I live in now, Westport, Connecticut, which is one hour out of New York City. And it's a big commuting town. And Serling in the 50s was living here in the mid-50s and commuting into New York City every day to work on these live television plays where he made his bones and won. The three Emmys Serling won that got him the creative clout to later do The Twilight Zone, Uh he got while living in Westport, commuting into the city every day. Okay. But that became the foundation for so many great episodes of The Twilight Zone that he would write years later, I believe he saw the dark underbelly of suburbia, the kind of man in the gray flannel suit kind of ideas that later became prominent in the beatnik era in the 60s and hippies, rejecting the status quo of uh-huh. the time. And Serling's doppelganger that he later writes in The Twilight Zone in Willoughby, is a classic 35 year old, harried Madison Avenue advertising exec. In the same way, walking distance was a 35 year old, harried New York City executive. I forget what the character Gig Young was doing. Maybe he was also in advertising or something. The point is, is these were, this was the climate Serling literally traveled in. Okay. So when we pick up Willoughby years later, In the Twilight Zone, in first season, 1960, the character uh, is this Harry Dad exec, and they establish that, and he dozes off on the train, and it takes place in the winter, and he wakes up, and all of a sudden it's the summer, and he's in a train car from the 1880s or whenever, and he looks outside, and there's this bucolic center of an old town called Willoughby, which looks like something out of a Courier and Ives etching, you know, with the gazebo and somebody on a unicycle and the bowler hats and, you know, Huck Finn and all that Americana. But, you know, Serling grew up in Binghamton, New York. And Binghamton, New York was endemic of a lot of small Northeast cities that sprouted up in the 19th century. And, you know, Binghamton had a past That was very much like what Serling would continue to write about in his adult life while living in the big city of New York City and feeling nostalgic for the boyhood of his youth before World War II when he grew up, which like a whole generation of great American artists who went to World War II and came back from it alive, but with post-traumatic stress disorder that they cathartically were able to release through their creative works, whether it's Norman Mailer on that J you know, they're just finding out that J D Salinger so much of why he wrote what he wrote comes from his experiences in world war II, in which he probably had PTSD from the intense shelling.
0: And that's
1: recently come to light within the whole world of J D Salinger, you know, as you know, is a whole little world unto its own. Yeah. because of the life that he lived and the way he, uh, you know, sequestered himself. Uh-huh. But Sterling was a victim of the war and it gave him a view of death that he had never witnessed growing up in a perfect bucolic Binghamton, you know, early 20th century childhood. And he, lo- he loses his father while he's in the war. So walking distance in which he wants to go back in time and he meets his father is Serling's wish fulfillment. So Willoughby is the sister episode to that. And he comes home, the ad set, and he lives in Westport. The episode takes place in Westport, Connecticut. So Serling actually writes it into the episode. You can hear the conductor on the train going, next stop, Westport, Saugatuck. Saugatuck is the next stop over in Westport. It's not a separate town, but it used to be, and now it's part of Westport, but it's got its own train stop. Uh So, Serling used real details from Westport, and the character played by John Daly, the father of the actress Tyne Daly from Cagney and Lacey, Uh that's who John Daly is, the, the actor. But again, he's playing Serling's doppelganger. And the guy comes home, to a classic materialist shrew of a wife who lives in a beautiful suburban upscale Westport lifestyle, even for the 1950s, which it was known for even back then. And because it's a suburb of, you know, wealthy white suburb of New York City, basically. And she only really loves him, quote unquote, because he's got a big paying Madison Avenue job but the job is killing him. And he actually says to her, a kind of a pre 1960s rejection, he says to the wife, and I'm quoting this dialogue from memory, some people aren't built for competition, or country clubs they wear around their neck like a badge of status, or big pretentious houses that they can't afford. This would become the cry of the counterculture years later, in the 1960s, the rejection of Pleasant Valley Sunday, which Carol King wrote about in 1966. So you see how Serling was a visionary of what would become the 60s by actually being part of the World War II beatnik generation in a way that was traumatized by the war, but like a visionary prophet was laying out to America the themes and the ideas of what America itself would have to confront with. So, so many of Serling's episodes about the, there were episodes about World War II and about the individual versus the state and about prejudice and bigotry. Serling cast the first black man in a dramatic television role in the spring of 1960, when there were no black people on TV, except for Amos and Andy. In other words, black people were invisible or a joke. Serling cast women in dramatic roles as single independent women in the early 60s when all the women on TV at the time were either screwball comedians like Lucille Ball or domesticated housewives like Donna Reed. And no offense to either one of them, but Serling, and maybe because he had two daughters of his own, but again, as a visionary that treated women as equals, He has some of the greatest Twilight Zone episodes are about single, unmarried women living and operating alone by themselves. The hitchhiker from the first season, Inger Stevens plays a career girl driving cross country to a new job. Mirror image, a single woman, also a young career girl in her 20s. The Invaders is about a lone woman living in a barn. The After Hours with Anne Francis is a woman alone in, locked in a department store at night. These are all roles that could have gone to men. And Serling chose women. And so many of the great episodes are about single independent women. So this is part of the greatness of the Twilight Zone is Serling was also a visionary of the ideas and the concepts. Like I said, it's the middle ground between surrealism and psychedelia in the sixties and everything that we've been talking about since.
0: That is, you know, as you're here describing some of these- By the way, you
1: like all that stream of consciousness? You think I'm reading off a teleprompter?
0: (laughs) No. Imagine
1: me with prepared material.
0: Hey, you know, uh, for for you listeners who are listening-
1: I mean, I'm rattling off these incredible sound bites and you're just, you're sitting there like it's another day at the
0: office. No, I, I'm actually, I'm really enjoying this. And I can see reflections behind you. And so I know there's no teleprompter. I was just going to say, listeners, he's not yeah. reading off teleprompters here.
1: Yeah, um, don't step on my line. <laughs> he,
0: this is, he He is this good.
1: Imagine me with images behind me.
0: You know, as just the word part. As you're sitting here talking about these episodes, I'm sitting yeah. here thinking I really need to go through and re watch the series. You're darn tootin', man. With a different set of eyes. Yes. My eyes. You're giving me um, you're giving context. me a, a different perspective and, and different context, exactly. That's um, what teaching
1: listen, everything is a teaching moment. I tried what I do I call edutainment. I'm sure I didn't coin that. I must have read that somewhere. That's been used before. Everything can be educational, but it could also be entertaining at the same time. When you think back to the great teachers you had growing up, assuming you had some great teachers, you remember them because they loved their subject matter, whether it was boring geometry or whatever. They, you consider them great because they communicated what they were teaching you because they also loved what they were teaching. And chances are, that's why you remember the teachers you remember. Am I right?
0: I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, so my point is, everything could be edutainment if you make it so. I try in everything I do to be edutaining. So that's what I do with, you know, the Twilight Zone. And the fact that you're getting it makes me feel good because that's what I'm trying to do is when you come to see my shows, or my presentations, my visual lectures, whatever you want to call them, even if you know the source material, the subject matter, like I'm doing Steve Ditko. Everybody knows Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and every, you know, if you know Steve Ditko. And if I mention Neil Adams' Batman, well, you will know Neil Adams' Batman. But after you've seen the way I present those subjects in both words and pictures in a live presentation, I guarantee you, You will walk out of there thinking and seeing those things in a new context, or at least that's my goal. But I really think it's a pretty um, safe bet to say there's no way you could come to my things no matter how much you think you know the source material and not come away with some kind of new way of looking at it, which is my goal.
0: Well, while we're talking about your other panels, and before we run out of time here, Arlen, uh, let's just let the listeners get a little sneak peek into what they can expect. So we've talked about the Twilight Zone, that is going to be on Friday from two to three p.m. Uh, that will be in uh, uh, pending any changes, uh, room one fifty G. In fact, I think all, they're all
1: I think they're all in the same room. That's yeah, why. I was.
0: I was just going to say, these are are all going to be in room 150G. uh, They're at the Salt Palace at X. But then on, let's see, Friday night at 6 p.m. from 6 to 7, you're doing a panel called Ditko, Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, and more. Right. So give us a little little sneak peek into what you talk about in that. I mean, obviously, it's Steve Ditko. First
1: of all, let me just say that all the lectures I do are so jam-packed with content that – I really need 90 minutes to do any one of these lectures. The fact that I have to stick within a strict format of under an hour, closer to 45 minutes, I'm just, I can't promise that I'm going to be able to finish, but trust me, whatever you're going to see in 45 minutes is going to be plenty to chew on. But I'm already giving myself a disclaimer ahead of time. I'm going to do my best. I mean, when you try to do a career overview of an artist like Steve Ditko, in 45 minutes, you know, you can either just do it like this without any depth, but the minute you try to show depth, you're also losing time. So it's a, as a presenter, it's a juggling act. How do I give you a meaningful retrospective on Steve Ditko considering he had a seven decade career? He was like Jack Kirby in that sense. Yeah. I recently did my Kirby Centennial lecture that you could see pretty much in full on my YouTube channel. But you know, trying to do Jack Kirby in 45 minutes. When I did my Kirby Centennial a couple years ago, 2017, at San Diego Comic-Con, when when the time was over in 45 minutes and you have to stop, I just got up to the mid-sixties. There was no way I could even approach finishing Kirby in 45 minutes. Oh yeah. But I did attempt to edit my Ditko lecture down where I'm hoping. I not only show you depth on his two greatest creations, Spider Man and Doctor Strange, but I give you enough of all the other things Ditko did that people remember fondly. Whether it's the early work, the black and white work for Warren, the stuff he did for DC Comics later, like Creeper and Hawk and Dove, um, The Question and Mr. A. I mean, all of these subjects, you can do 45 minute presentations on alone so you know i try to ride that line between giving you a legitimate overview of Ditko's career but i do concentrate on giving you my takes on his two greatest um timeless creations which are spider-man and dr strange
0: okay and the last panel um i think you know the (laughs) the title of it really i think it's pretty self-explanatory but it is going to be on saturday from 3 to 4 p.m at 50 two years to three of... p. M. sorry 2
1: to 3 p.m
0: uh i'm looking at the app here it says 3 to 4 so oh, 3
1: to 4 I, I thought you said 2 to
0: 4 oh no sorry right. sorry 3, sorry. To, four, three to 3 to 4 p.m it's called 50 years of neil adams's batman yes so that title right there is pretty self-explanatory but how how much do you dig into there with that?
1: Well, let me just say that, you know, if you grew up like I did of the generation that came of age when the Batman TV show hit big and really created in the minds of everybody and within the comics themselves, that Batman was a campy, caped clown. It was the comedic approach. Uh, I was I was one of a number of fans of the comics that preceded the TV show. And that was called the new look with the artist Carmen Infantino, a really cool looking Batman. He's the Batman artist of the 60s. That wasn't the Batman we got on TV. We got instead the Batman that was molded more on the Batman from the 1950s, which was this goofy, science fiction, outrageous, inherently camp situations. You know, the nature of the word camp is to take material and be self-conscious about it. You know, modern art, in, in one way, is all about self-consciousness and creating art to be art. We look back on corny serials from the 1940s, which was the birth of the Batman TV show, by the way. It was Hugh Hefner and his pals in the Playboy Mansion showing those old 1940s Batman Robin serials, which are ridiculous looking, if you've uh-huh.
0: seen it. Oh, yeah. And,
1: and they were laughing back at the screen like Rocky Hart Picture Show. And an ABC TV executive was in that group in 1964 or 5 when Hefner was doing this, and he went to ABC in Hollywood and said, you know what, we should get the rights to Batman and actually do it as a TV show because... Batman is hip. And that's how the TV
0: show happened. I had no idea that was a story.
1: Yes. And the rest is history. But as a Batman fan of the comics, specifically the Infantino new look Batman, we hated the show or what I call a love, hate relationship with it. You got to remember, and I'm getting back to Neil Adams and how he figures into all this. We expect, we had already been through the first four Bond films, which I consider to be the canon of Bond. It's the first four Connery films. Uh While there is some comic relief in his little quips after he kills somebody, those are serious movies. Yeah. They're serious spy films. From Rush with Love is like a Hitchcock film almost. And yet it's a Bond film. You know what I mean? Yeah. We expected Batman was going to be treated like the way Connery was Bond. From the very first episode, five minutes into the first episode, they're climbing up the walls and they go to take the iron bars off of the window they wanna break into. Batman takes his laser torch, bat laser, and then Robin is about to drop the bars and Batman stops him and says, Robin, hold on, you might injure innocent civilians down below. So he takes out his bat suction cup with the hook from his utility belt, sticks it on the brick wall, takes the bars and hangs them up. I'm seven and a half years old watching on a Zenith black and white television. I didn't even have color at that time. Batman was, you know, my hero from the comics. My older brother is nine years old. We're on our knees watching the TV like an altar because Batman coming on television. I remember all we had was the George Reeves Superman TV show. Yeah, That's it in reruns. There were no superhero movies. Are you kidding me? We never saw the 40 serials. They weren't showing them on television and reruns. We had never seen that stuff. All we had was Superman with George Reeves. The idea of Batman being on TV was, imagine the first three Star Wars films rolled into one. The buildup of that first episode, and they only built it up for one month before it debuts in January 66. But it was a brilliant buildup. So the minute he hangs the bars up, my brother and I turn to each other in unison, and out loud we go, they're making fun of Batman. Now, we didn't know the word camp. Susan Sontag coined the word in her famous 1964 essay in in the New York Review or some literary um, paragon. But we knew they were making, because we knew Connery Bond You couldn't imagine Sean Connery going into a discotheque and doing a little Bond dance?
0: Oh, no. Okay. Oh, no.
1: yet, here was our beloved Batman. Are you kidding me? So, when I talk to people in my age group, and they say, oh, I remember watching as a kid. I didn't know it was camp. You know? uh," And I'm like, I was a kid. I knew five minutes into it. The first episode. Yeah that they were making fun of Batman. So how does this connect to Neil Adams? That was January 66. The TV show does its damage. The comics follow the suit of the TV show and become ridiculous. The art is horrible. Batman, DC's greatest figure after Superman, is dying in the comics. The show goes off the air in the spring of 68. By that time, I had given up watching the show after the... The first season, it was so ridiculous. People talk about, oh, the first season. The first season was as ridiculous as the later seasons. The point is, is by the time it went off the air in 1968, Batman was in a shambles creatively. But I was still buying every issue out of loyalty because I was a young Batman fan. But you got to remember, all DC reprinted in those days were stories from the 1950s. We didn't know the golden age of Batman, that he was this mysterious creature of the night. The only reprint of a 1940s Batman story that we ever saw was when Jules Pfeiffer did the great history book called The Great Comic Book Heroes that comes out at the end of 1965. And it's the first real history book about comics. Are you familiar with Pfeiffer's book?
0: I'm not, no. Well,
1: you should. You should get it. It's Foundation. It's really a collection of essays that Pfeiffer writes about the superheroes because he was a kid in the early 40s when all the superheroes were coming out and he was a young comic fan. He later ends up becoming an assistant to Will Eisner. Okay. Did you know
0: that? I did not know that. I do know Eisner. To
1: become the great Jules Pfeiffer, renaissance man, playwright, cartoonist, graphic novelist. You know, he's one of the greats, Jules Pfeiffer. But – in the mid-'60s in the pop art era, um, an editor at dial press, Lyle Stewart, I believe his name, said to Jules Pfeiffer, "How about, um, you know, turning that article you wrote for Playboy" in 1965 into a book. And it was Pfeiffer's reminiscences about his boyhood comic book heroes. And thus is the first book, which, as a kid, growing up in Fairlawn, New Jersey. The buzz went around the school that there was an actual hardcover book in the Fairlawn Public Library about comic books. You got to remember, in those days, there were no books about comics at all. The idea that there was a hardcover book about comics, it was like finding treasure. And that's what later influenced me to do my own history book. But it's considered the first sort of history of comics. And it's by Jules Pfeiffer. And, but like I said, it's really not a hit. It's really a collection of essays about, and then he got the rights to reprint the origin stories of Batman, Superman, Green Lantern, and he prints a spirit story. It's the first time any of us had ever even heard of the spirit uh-huh. because it had never been reprinted in the mid sixties. So we never saw with the exception of that first Batman story, we didn't know about Batman as this dark creature night, but we saw hints of it. Sometimes in those reprints, Dick Spryne would draw Batman with a big mysterious cape. They reprinted those 1940s syndicated Batmans, which are drawn by a different artist named Jack Burnley. That's my favorite golden age Batman artist. And his Batman was in the shadows more and more mysterious. So... There was in our, what I call, Bat Collective Unconscious, this image we had that Batman is not supposed to be this cape clown. And, and by the way, somebody did a beautiful volume reprinting the Batman syndicated strips of the 40s, the Sundays. Yes. gorgeous. To me, Jack Burnley is the great Batman artist of the Golden Age. Not Kane, not Jerry Robinson. The yeah. The stories are better, actually, too. The point is, is, this still comes back to Neil Adams. Three months after Batman leaves the air, in the summer of 1968, Neil Adams draws Batman in a single issue of a title called Brave and Bold, which was a Batman team-up title.
0: Uh That that huh Superman, wasn't it?
1: The character Adams made his bones on earlier that year at DC called Deadman. And Uh Adams wanted to draw Batman... But the editor of the Batman title, Drew Waltz, had already just committed to the journeyman DC artist, Irv Novik, as the lead artist on the Batman titles. And Neil Adams had no place to go, but he went to Murray Boltonoff, the editor of Brave and Bold, and convinced him, let me draw Batman and Brave and Bold, and let's start with Deadman, the character that I'm doing that's getting a lot of acclaim. And God bless Murray Boltonoff, because he said yes, in that single issue, in the summer of 68, Track of the Hook, written by the great DC writer Bob Haney, but autored and illustrated by Neil Adams, is one of the single greatest Batman stories of all time. But in that issue, Adams gives us what you would call the modern Dark Knight, the mysterious Batman. There would be no Frank Miller. There'd be no Dark Knight. There'd be no... Michael Uslan, the producer of the Batman films to do the Tim Burton Batman film without what Neil Adams did in the single issue alone, gave us the Batman that was in our collective bat unconscious. This mysterious, but we saw the man because of his realistic style. We saw for the first time the man behind the mask. And we also saw his bat like qualities with the cape as this almost living thing that every artist who's drawn Batman since has done their version of. But Adams takes the Batman from the early 40s that he grew up with as a kid, that he remembered, and drew him almost photo realistically in the patented Neil Adams style that he became famous and groundbreaking for. But, It was that Batman that changed the game. So that was when he starts drawing Batman, but the effect of doing Brave and Bold for a year, he did eight issues between the summer of 68 and the summer of 69. All eight issues are brilliant. They're all featured different team-up characters, but that's where you get the Batman. That's where you get all the visual tropes that Batman silhouetted against the moon. Yes, you can go back to the early 40s and find crudely drawn Bob Kane, you know, Jerry Robinson versions of those things. Uh-huh. And that was quaint for the style of Batman then. Neil Adams took that and just brought it into the modern era of great comic book art that he was a part and parcel of and caused the revolution of. And part of that revolution was doing it with Batman. So the reason why 1969 is significant is because the success of his run on Brave and Bold finally convinced Julius Schwartz to say, okay, I'll let you draw Batman now. And he teams Neil Adams up with DC's best young writer, Denny O'Neill, who was working on Justice League of America and bringing a more hipper, younger point of view. He was like the DC version of Roy Thomas, what Roy Thomas was doing at Marvel. Him and Denny O'Neill were contemporaries. And it's it's not coincidental that the greatest artist at the time, Neil Adams, ended up doing his greatest work with those two writers at both DC and Marvel. So they were the best working with the best. So Denny O'Neill came in and teamed up with Neil in 1969 to begin what would become a four-year run, four to five years about. Well, let's see. The Denny O'Neill run ends in 1973. So, yes, a kind of four-year run of solo Batman stories. There's a couple with Robin here and there, but primarily solo Batman stories that jettison all of the bat crap that we were sick of because the TV show. No Batcave, no Alfred, hardly any Robin. Um, none of the bat pa- no Batmobile. Yeah, one of two issues. Uh, he drives a sort of a souped up sports car. It's the Batman of many of our dreams. The solo Batman from that first year. I'm of a small minority that believes Batman jumps the shark in the spring of 1940 when Robin is introduced. I've never liked Robin. I never understood Robin. And if Batman is based on the shadow, can you imagine the shadow with a brightly colored sidekick named light boy, light lad. Are you kidding me? Ridiculous.
0: You know, I'm sitting shadow here had
1: operatives. Batman should have had operatives like the shadow instead. This brightly colored 12 year old boy is going to pal around with this darkness. No wonder Batman became this grinning moron, this smiling father figure walking down As Neil Adams would say later, the Champs-Élysées in broad daylight. So the point is, Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill jettisoned all of that for what many consider, I'm not alone in this, the definitive run of Batman stories. And I include, you know, the Brave and Bold stories as well. The Neil Adams era, really of Batman, begins in 68 and ends in 1974. But the solo era... A Batman Begins in 1969, and that's what I'm celebrating in my last presentation at Fanex on Saturday. 50 years of Neil Adam Batman, the greatest living Batman artist.
0: I would agree with you there that he is the greatest. Even if you like Neil Adams,
1: when you see my show, again, I think you'll still come away going, wow, I liked Neil Adams before, I even loved him before, but man, you know, you're gonna see all that great Batman work hopefully fresh yeah then i've done my job
0: well i think that is our time in fact i think we're actually over time here but well, what th- can i tell you it's nothing that i didn't expect in all honesty Arlen. <laughs> At least i'm consistent i know well no i mean i just know you know you know so much and there's so much knowledge that just comes from you i knew This was going to be a long episode and I was giving away
1: like Johnny Appleseed. That's just, it flows.
0: And if you listener want to come get more of that, Arlen will be at FanX in Salt Lake City this weekend, both days That is going to be the 19th and 20th of April, both Friday and Saturday. Check out his panels. He'll be doing his lectures. They are going to his visual lectures. Excuse me. They're going to be awesome. Although abbreviated, they will still be fantastic. And, uh,
1: and more content than you can. It'll be TMI. You know what I mean by TMI? Too much information.
0: In, indeed. You'll probably be tired when you, need, when you get done, need a break. Yeah, you
1: won't be tired. You'll be kind of. Um,
0: your brain you'll be will like, be full. No,
1: you'll be, your, your head will be blitzed from information overload.
0: <laughs> exactly. I
1: don't know if tired is the right you'll, you'll need
0: You'll need a nap to recharge before you go to the next one.
1: Yeah, you'll need to decompress.
0: Yes. But yeah, check out Arlen on his site, uh, arlenshumer.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter. He's got some. Instagram. Yep. He's got some. I'm all
1: over social media.
0: So yeah, but. But Arlen com, that's going to link you everywhere. His right. YouTube page. And yeah, Arlen, thank you as always for joining us. It's always yeah, fun. I love you. you,
1: man. Thank you for this platform. Anytime.
0: Yeah, it's always I fun. I can't happening. wait to
1: see you in person. Am yeah. I going to see you Thursday night when I come in late?
0: Um, I think uh, I've, been, I've been chatting with, with uh, my team. Uh, yeah, Arlen is actually going to be joining us for a mo- an episode of Movies That Make Us. So at oh, least that is the plan right now so, I can't wait
1: Shane, come back Shane
0: Yes, we are, we are going to be discussing Shane with him uh, The greatest western ever made Yes uh, But it looks, it, uh, talking with him a little bit uh, Over the last few days I, th- I think we're going to try and do that on Friday uh, Whatever
1: you want to do Matt, I can't wait
0: So yeah, we'll, we'll touch base on Friday When you're here and So you get into town, get some dinner, get some rest Get ready Bye. for the show on Friday I can't um, to See you, man. But yeah, on uh, so yeah, come down to Salt Palace on on Friday and Saturday. Check this out; it's gonna be a, it's gonna be fun. Also, while we're talking about movies that make us, those guys are gonna be doing a live podcast Saturday afternoon. I am not sure the details because, of course, I only pulled up Arlen's information. I wasn't prepared to pimp those guys, although I should have been prepared to pimp them. Ah. Um, and I believe that I'm actually going to be joining them as well. But we're going to be doing a live show. Uh, so come and join us. We're going to be remaking the Marvel Universe. Uh, uh-huh. So that should be fun. Uh, excuse me, remaking the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So see what happens after the snap, I think, is, is what, what we're doing.
1: When is uh, Avengers coming out?
0: Uh, it's
1: coming out after the convention, the 25th, I think. It right? is,
0: yeah. It comes yeah. out. It comes out the f- next yeah Friday, so we I won't think. Be able to see it, yeah. The I 26th, so something like that, yeah. Yeah, I think it comes out the 26th. Yeah. So if you see us down at the Fanex, be sure to stop us and say hi. We'll be giving high fives, and-, and I
1: think they're giving me a table where I'll have my Silver Age books for sale that I'll be able to sign for people. Uh, both days in between my lectures, I, somewhere I should be.
0: Okay, great. Will you have, will, will that be the only book you have? Will you have your Twilight Zone book? No,
1: and- I'll just have my other books to show. The only book to sell will be my Silver Age book.
0: Okay. Okay, yeah. great. So yeah, if, like I said at the beginning of the show, if you have not picked that up, this is a perfect opportunity. Plus you can get it signed by the man himself. So why and not?
1: sketched in. I give you a little sketch that I think you're going to love.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful. Let's go ahead and call this a show. If you haven't already, go ahead and please subscribe to Android's podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else. And while you're there, please be sure to leave us a rating and review so that others know what you think of the show. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Stolen Droids. And for news and information between episodes, check us out at stolendroids.com. And we'll be back next week with another episode. I believe we're going to be recording uh, at least one episode at FanX. We may be doing a few more than that. But until then, be good to each other. This has been a Stolen Droids Media Production.